This morning, I want to talk to you about the subject, Jesus Christ, the true King of the Hill. Jesus Christ, the true King of the Hill. When I was younger than I am now, uh, we used to play a game, and I'm sure that many of you may have played this game as well. We used to all get on top of a hill, and then we would say start or go, and everybody on the hill would start to throw each other down the hill. And we would repeat, repeatedly do this until one person was standing on the top of the hill, and they were pronounced the king of the hill, until someone climbed back up the hill and threw them down the hill. And so it just repeated itself uh, cyclically until some, we all got too tired to play the game. And um, there's a lot of that going on right now. Uh, in case you haven't noticed, uh, there's a hill in Washington called Capitol Hill, and there's a lot of um, King of the Hill game playing uh, there. And we've got a White House, and we've got a couple guys uh, playing King of the Hill and want to see who's the last man standing. And um, for us, however, uh, we know that Jesus Christ is the true King of the Hill. That's not up for vote. It's not a matter of election. Uh, it's a done deal. He's in charge. He's God Almighty. He's sitting on the throne and <laughs> there will be no throwing him down from the hill. Um, that's impossible. Um, but here in this particular passage, as you look at the first three verses, uh, you find there, there is a group of nations, and it says they're raging. Literally, it says they're tumultuously assembling. It's a riot. They're enraged. They're protesting. And uh, the peoples are plotting in vain. It says, plotting is the same word used in Psalm 1 for meditate, which, which that word means a soliloquy. It means to have a conversation with yourself. And these people in Psalm 2 are talking themselves into uh, um, vanity, emptiness, because whatever they're planning, it's vain. It's not going to work. It will never materialize. And, um, and, uh, Perhaps you've seen people, when they have a, a challenge in front of them, they, they talk themselves into it, you know, positive thinking and positive reinforcement. They build themselves up and talk themselves into something, and that's basically what these people are trying to do. And as David uh, continues in verse 2, he describes a little bit uh, what this looks like. It looks like the kings of the earth setting themselves. They're establishing themselves, and um, the rulers are joining together, counseling together, and they're, they're having meetings and they're planning. Um, I'm sure a lot of that is going on as well in Washington. Uh, but, but who are they up against? In this particular passage, it says they, they're setting themselves, they're, they're plotting, they're raging, they're counseling together against none other than the Lord. Now, 
we know from, this is Psalm chapter 2, I mean, you can start at Genesis and read up to this point, and you discover that plotting against the Lord doesn't work. It, it never does. Sometimes it looks like it's going to work, but it never does. Um, and, and so they're plotting against the Lord, and they're plotting against his anointed. Now, when David wrote this, he was, in some sense, thinking of himself, because he was God's anointed. Uh, but this, this obviously looks ahead to another anointed one. And, uh, but, but let's look at what they're saying first. They're, in verse 3 it says, they're saying, let us burst their bonds apart. They're talking about the Lord's bonds. And cast away their cords from, from them. Now what's, what's awfully sad about this is that uh, these people don't understand, they're ignorant of uh, the nature of the Lord. You may recall in Hosea chapter 11, it says in verse 4, I, I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And um, that's, the, that's the Lord speaking about his people. And, 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 and so the bonds that these people are trying to burst apart are Bonds of love. But they don't get that. Uh, the cords that they're trying to cast away from them are cords of kindness. But they're not seeing that. Because the only thing they can see is themselves. There's a lot of selfish ambition going on in these first three verses. There's a lot of self-centered ambition and, and uh, uh, desiring autonomy. I don't want anybody ruling my life, running my life. I'll rule my own life. And that's what uh, these people are doing. That's what they're raging against. They don't want anyone running their life. And that, that's the primary uh, thing that uh, our sin and our sinful nature rages against. We don't want to be ruled. You know, don't tell us what to do. Don't you feel that way? Even if you don't, you've got that sort of dynamic going on inside of you. We all do. Um, why is it that you rage? Because oftentimes we do rage. You ever want to riot? Why is it? A lot of times it's because you just can't get your way. Sometimes it's because others seem to have their way with you. Uh, but, but these people in this, these verses are rioting because they don't want God to have his way with them. They're sick of him. And they're tired of his words. They're tired of his will. They're tired of his presence. They don't want him. And that should remind you of Jesus. He, he, he created the whole world and he came to the world and the world did not acknowledge him. They didn't know him. They didn't want to know him. He came to his own house and they didn't want anything to do with him for the most part. In Luke 19, uh, Jesus says of 
his generation, they did not want this king ruling over them. And you see that that plays out ultimately in the crucifixion. And you see that chronicled uh, if you turn over to uh, the book of Acts, particularly Acts chapter 4, you see there how Luke tells the story. And beginning in verse 23, it says, when, when they were released, they went out, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. But here's the catch. They thought they were having their way. But verse 28 says to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Isn't that interesting? That's why it, it never works out when you fight against God. These folks, Pontius Pilate, Herod, and the Jews and the Gentiles, all these people were enraged with Jesus Christ. They were enraged with God. And, and they, 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 they sought to snuff it all out. But in the process of all their rage, they were just doing what God predestined would take place in the first place. You can't fight God and win. It never works. Whenever you seek autonomy, you seek emptiness. You seek something that ultimately is going to be self-destructive. Selfish ambition is self-destructive. That's humanity's main problem, is they're addicted. You're addicted. I'm addicted. We're addicted to ourselves. And only Jesus can change that about you. Nobody else can. There's not a pill. There's not a doctor. There's not some kind of meditation. There's not some kind of acupuncture or pressure that can change that. Only Jesus can change that in you. Um, these folks, uh, that's what they need. And notice, notice how this psalm begins. Why um, do the nations rage? It's, it's an interesting question. Uh, they're raging because they don't want to be ruled by God. But, but the sense also is, why bother? Why try to fight God? You know it's not going to work. Um, they said that about the apostles when they were going out and preaching about Jesus Christ and they wanted to stop them and, and uh, the word came down from the top that if this is from man, it'll stop itself. It'll self-destruct. 
But if it's from God, forget about it. You're not going to win. Um, and so, so we see, um, as we look at these verses, look at your own heart. Do you find in yourselves sometimes, right, um, you don't want to do what God wants you to do. You don't want King Jesus running a show in your life at this particular point or at that particular point. Look, just give up. You're not going to win. You're going to find yourself fighting the King of Kings. He's the King of the Hill, and you're not going to pull him down. The call is, as we shall see, to submit to Him. And, and what, what, what gets you to that place of submitting to Him is to recognize that, that the bonds that you may try from time to time to burst apart are really, they're really bonds of love. God said through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Why, why get rid of that? It's the most wonderful thing. God's love is better than life itself. And um, you're going to find yourself trying to cast away those cords. And why would you want to do that? They're the cords of kindness. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. Why would you want to get rid of that? Uh, you know, it says if there's any encouragement in Christ, Right? We should be encouraged that God loves us through Christ and He's been kind to us. And in this, in this rage of humanity, in this vain plotting against sovereignty, in this setting uh, ourselves up against the deity, against our counsel together to throw Him off the hill, uh, we found in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, it seems like we won. We got him. He's dead. But the strange twist of the gospel, the beautiful twist of the gospel, was in that death, in that apparent demise of Jesus Christ, our sins are washed away. That, that, that enraging riot within us against God is suddenly silenced and converted into a peaceful protest of love and joy and exaltation in the love and kindness of the sovereign God who we wanted to bring down. And in so doing, He brought us up. So we should be thankful when your heart and your sin get next to you and you want to rage and you want to riot against Jesus and against His rule, take it back to Calvary. Take it back to the cross. Spend some time there not, not plotting or meditating on how you want your own way, but meditate like the psalmist did in Psalm 1 on, on the law of God. And, and in that law, that Torah, it's not just a bunch of do's and don'ts, but it's it's the, the Genesis through Deuteronomy gives us a history, not of simply commandment, but a history of love, a history of redemption, a history of salvation, a history of rescue. And let that love of God once again melt your heart 
and uh, renew your mind to the point of offering yourselves bodily, fully to the King because of His mercy is given to you. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. It says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now here, this is very interesting. The Lord is laughing at this this desire, this sinful desire to to cast off, uh, cast away his cords and to burst his bonds. Uh, The Lord's laughing, but but it's not because it's funny. The Lord's laughing is is some kind of Hebraic idiom. It's a euphemism, uh, meaning that he's not worried. He's not daunted. He's not intimidated. He's not moved. This is God shaking his head at a headless humanity. The Lord is laughing because they have done their worst. Calvary was the worst humanity could do. The cross was the worst humanity could do, but the cross was in God's will. It was His plan. It was all predestined and foreordained. And at the worst they could do, God is shaking his head because he's simply not moved. He's not intimidated. He's not daunted. He's not troubled. He's not worried. Because he's in control. As a matter of fact, he's deriding them, it says. He he holds them in derision. And this this means a couple of things. It means that he's, he's giving people over to their sin to cement them in their sin, in order to punish them in the end. That's that's not funny. That's not a laughter you want to deal with. That God is giving people over to their sin when when they persist in rebellion, refusing to repent. God gives you over to your sin and cements you in it so that you might be punished for it. Another thing that can be going on, another thing that can be going on, is that he's exposing how foolish and how futile their plans are in order to bring them to their knees before the true king. And that's a blessing when that happens. It's a blessing when God opens your eyes to see how futile and how foolish your plans against Him really are. That's a blessing. It's so hard to to handle when God gives you over to sin. He abandons you to your sin. That's a bad place to be. So if the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart and, and calling you to repentance Pay attention. If the Spirit of God is exposing to you how foolish and how futile your sinful ways are, pay attention. Repent. Turn back to God. Because one thing is certain. God has established a king, and his name is Jesus. 
He has established him on Zion, his holy hill. Back in the day, this was in Jerusalem. Today, it's the church. Jesus Christ is present in the midst of his church, like he's seen in the book of Revelation. The church is God's headquarters on earth, and Jesus has been established there as the king. He's established in the heavens. He's established in every place. That's what the Bible says. You know, every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth is going to bow to Jesus. Every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone must bow. Everyone must confess. At some point, it has to happen. Because God has established his king. And notice the words that's used here in verse 5. It says, he speaks to them in his wrath. He, you know, these people are raging against God. God is raging against them. Because in the face of Calvary, how did Jesus become the king? How did Jesus become the king? He became the king by humbling himself, as it says in Philippians 2. He took on the form of a servant being found in human likeness. That itself, being incarnated into human likeness, was was humbling as, 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 as itself. But, but then he went a step further and, and took on sin and became sin and, and died on the cross. He went to the bottom. He went to ground zero. He went to the lowest place of all. And that's why God has raised him to the highest place of all and given him a name, given him the name Lord. And it's in view of his love on Calvary and his lordship out of the tomb that God calls us to repent and live for him. And for those who look at the cross and look at the crown and say, I still want my own control, God rages against that kind of attitude. He terrifies that type of person. He's infuriated at that type of person who looks at the cross of Christ and looks at the crown of Christ and says, eh, I still want my own way. And the Bible says in verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And what's so terrifying to the ears of the unrepentant, to those who persist in perversion, what's so terrifying is God saying, I have established a king on Zion, my holy hill. It's a hill set apart for holy things. And that's the only way back to God. That's the only way to live life is God's way. And any other life that's lived against God and not God's way, there's wrath coming. There's fury coming. The Lord derides. His laughter turns into fury. Because God has determined to sovereignly establish His King, and He has done that on Zion. And the kingdom of Christ will never, ever end. Jesus is king right now. He's not waiting to become king. He's not waiting for his kingdom to be established. He is the king. 
and he's reigning right now. You know, Isaiah and Daniel had much to say about that. A passage that we often read, probably always read around uh, Christmas time. In Isaiah chapter 9, it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then it says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth, and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then you find um, a similar theme in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter, chapter 7, you find these words in verse 13 and 14, I saw in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. Notice the direction in which he came. He came to the Ancient of Days. It's talking about the ascension of Christ. And was presented before him, and to him was given dominion. Remember Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Go make disciples of all nations. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is why the Lord derided and derides people. This is why the Lord shakes his head at the very thought of someone challenging his authority, and the authority of his anointed one. Sometimes as a church we don't understand the power and authority that Jesus has and how he wants to exercise that authority through you. You know the passage in Ephesians chapter 3, we quote it so often, uh, but it's a passage that we should uh, remember in verse 20 of Ephesians 3, it says, now, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. That power of God is at work inside of you. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working inside of you. The Spirit of God who exalts Jesus Christ to us. And it's the power of the Spirit shedding the love of Christ abroad in our hearts. It's the power of the love of Jesus in you and working through you. Are you rooted in His love? As, as Paul said, He was controlled by, constrained by the love of Jesus Christ. Are you constrained by that love? Are you being controlled by the love of Jesus? Are you meditating on it? Are you thinking about the love of Christ? Is it what moves you and controls you in all that you seek to do? May it be so. That's what's required here is true uh, devotion to Jesus. His love controlling and ruling in your heart. 
Well, the establishment of the king in verse 6 moves on to the king himself speaking in verse 7 through 9. Uh, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And although this in historical context spoke of David, obviously, and his exaltation to uh, the throne, his coronation upon uh, the demise of Saul, um, it ultimately, again, points to Jesus Christ, and this particularly points to his resurrection, as we have just been speaking. This passage is quoted in um, Acts chapter uh, 13, and it's attributed to, uh, it's a passage that's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that, um, that he received a decree, an eternal, uh, authoritative uh, commandment. Uh, that's what a decree is, an eternal purpose given to him by God uh, upon his resurrection from the dead. And that decree was that he was, uh, more than any other, the Son of God and established by his Lord. And Son of God doesn't mean he, at any point he wasn't the Son of God, but it means that his sonship was thoroughly proven by his act on the cross and his act in his death and burial and resurrection. And um, he is now given, he's the son who is the heir and the owner of everything. And you see that where the Lord's decree, the Lord says to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, ask of me. The Lord tells him to ask of him, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." And that's, what, that's, the, that's the sense behind Jesus' great commission. Go make disciples of all nations. Why? Because they all belong to me. Spread the kingdom across the earth. Why? Because it's my possession. Jesus is saying, I own everything, Jesus says. Everything's been given to Christ Jesus. And it says, ask of me. And so that speaks to us as believers and followers of Jesus uh, you and I should be praying for the nations to come to Jesus Christ. We should be praying for uh, the earth to experience the fullness of His kingdom so that the earth might be filled with the knowledge of His glory just like the waters cover the sea. That's God's goal in Christ. And it's God's goal in Christ for you and for your life. That's your purpose as a follower of Jesus Christ is to be someone who fills this world with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just like the waters cover the sea. That is your purpose um, from Jesus Christ, that you would be one who, who pursues the nations in prayer. And we should be people who are constantly in prayer for every single nation, every single country in the world, to know the name of Jesus Christ. And not simply know His name, but know it and love it. Like Paul said, I want to know Christ. That they would know His name in that manner and with that attitude. Simply ask. Ask of me. You know, Ahaz was asked, uh, was told by God to ask for a sign and he refused to do it because he didn't have faith. Solomon was told to ask for something, and he asked for wisdom, and he, he received it, but unfortunately he failed it through compromise, because he settled. Don't you settle. Ask, in concert with Jesus Christ, for the nations to come to faith. 
for the earth to know the glory of the Lord. Because the Lord, He is Lord. And it says here that He has a, a rod of iron. Now, the translation can it, it, we have written here, you shall break them with a rod of iron. Another uh, reading is you shall rule them with a rod of iron. And of course, uh, ruling is what uh, Jesus desires to do. But the alternative, when, when, when you or when others don't want to be ruled, is that Jesus is able to break. And, and to the nations in this chapter of Psalms, uh, the nations that, that want to burst the bonds and cast away the cords, the nations that don't want the Lord ruling over them, that persist in their rebellion, it says that Jesus will break them. He will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Uh, so there's only two ways uh, to have it. Uh, you either are called to be ruled. We're all called to be ruled. And if, if you don't want that, then the alternative is to be ruined by, by the Lord. And, and, and that seems sometimes, it may seem harsh. Maybe the imagery of Jesus that you have in your mind is not of him dashing people like pottery, throwing pottery on the ground. Um... And, and smashing it to pieces. That may not be the image you have of Jesus, and perhaps you need to read um, Jesus' cleansing of the temple a little bit more carefully. Uh, but, but Jesus has the ability uh, to, uh, to ruin the lives of those who refuse to have him rule them. And, and it's not harsh at all when you consider what Christ Jesus has done. Jesus said, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Take my call to obey. My commandments upon yourself. And then he says, Learn of me. Because I'm meek and lowly in heart. And that meekness and lowliness points to Calvary. It points to his love and his grace and his mercies. And those, those things call us to gladly and zealously submit ourselves to Him because He has laid His life down. And again, once again, we said it before, in view of His love on the cross and His Lordship, His crown, if I look at those things and say, eh, I'm not interested, I want to run my own life, well, He's going to dash you to pieces if that's your attitude. Don't let it be. Submit yourself to Him. And that's what the last verses call us to here. Verses 10 through 12. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Not only are we called to pray for the nations, we're called to open our mouths and warn the nations as well. That's what the psalmist does here. He says, now therefore in view of, of, of being smashed like pottery to pieces, in view of being ruled by the king, 
in view of the possession of the whole earth given to Jesus, in view of the nations made his, her his heritage, in view of him having all authority, raised from the dead, given all power, in view of this eternal purpose of God, this eternal decree, in view of God himself establishing his king on Zion, his holy hill, in view of the wrath of God and his derision uh, uh, that he gives to those who refuse to bow the knee to him. In view of the whole psalm, in view of all of these things, it says everyone in leadership, all the kings, we live in a democracy, you should consider yourself to be a sort of king, shouldn't you? Someone shared that insight with me many years ago. It's not just the people at, in Washington, so to speak, that have the authority. You also do at some level. Now, therefore, O kings, whoever you are, whatever position and authority and resources are at your disposal, be wise. And wisdom, someone once said, is the ability to, it's a social skill. It's the ability to navigate in God's world, God's way, for God's glory. That's what wisdom is. It's the ability to navigate in God's world, God's way, for God's glory. Be wise, O kings, it calls them to, and calls you to be wise. And it says uh, to be warned. To be warned, O rulers of the earth. And... and what we need to do is given to us not only to be wise and to be warned, but to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling and to kiss the Son. There are three things. There's five things listed here, but there are three things I want to just focus on as we close out. Serve the Lord. It says with fear. And fear is, doesn't mean that you're afraid or scared of the Lord like you would jump at a ghost or something like this. But fear means to stand in awe, to be awestruck and awe-inspired because of who God is and the great work of redemption He has achieved and accomplished in Jesus Christ. Again, it goes back to Paul. It's the love of Christ that controls because you become convinced that one died for all and therefore all have died and He died for all so that we who live would no longer live for ourselves but for the one who died and was raised again on our behalf. Serve the Lord with fear. And it's also, it's three things. It's not only just uh, standing in awe and being awe-inspired by Him and His works, but it's also standing in awe of the rewards and the judgment that will come. We see, about, we look, we see this, in, in, for example, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, where it says, uh, beginning there in verse um, 10, it says, According to the grace of God uh, given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. If God has given you a, a specific task to do. He's given you gifts to use, to build up the body, to advance the gospel, to extend the kingdom. And he calls you to use those resources he's placed in you by his Holy Spirit. And there is an evaluation coming. 
on how you have made use of those resources God has given to you. It doesn't put our salvation in jeopardy. That's been uh, settled at Calvary. There's no more condemnation for, for those who are in Christ Jesus. At the same time, there are those uh, rewards that we receive. It's God working in us, of course. It's His grace working in us. It's, uh, it's God who's making things grow. There's an evaluation coming. And we're to stand, stand in awe of that as well. And not only that, but it's, it's standing in awe of the fact that God intends to do a major work in your life. Again, the Ephesians 3 passage. God intends to work powerfully through His church, powerfully through you, and to stand in awe that, that God has invested in you His riches with an expectation that great uh, work you can do, work that He's prepared beforehand for you to do. And He's put those gifts and resources in you for that particular purpose. So get to work. Serve the Lord with fear in light of these things. And it says, Rejoice with trembling. Remember the hymn writer said, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? He was so shocked that the likes of him, a sinful person, has gained an interest in Jesus' blood. Do you rejoice like that with trembling? Shocked that you're saved? Surprised by the joy that the Lord has given you? In Christ Jesus? It is amazing love. But then the hymn writer says, How can it be that thou, my God, shouldest die for me? That's great joy. And it's joy that makes you tremble. Not tremble again with fear, but just tremble with joy and rejoicing. It's kind of like Mary who said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She was flabbergasted that this was happening to her. All generations shall call little old Mary blessed. Like the Samaritan woman. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Running without a shamed face into the crowd. Calling people to see this man named Jesus. And it's just like the women. Remember when they came to the, to the tomb to take care of the body of Christ and he wasn't there. And the angel announced to them that he was risen from the dead. And it says they... They left the tomb trembling and astonishment seized them. It says they were, they were joyful as well as fearful all at the same time. They couldn't believe what was happening, but it was too good not to be true. That's the way it has to be with us, that what Christ has done for us, what His death on the cross, it's too good not to be true. We have a lot of things that are too good to be true. And usually it's true that they're too good to be true, but this is too good not to be true. That God Himself, Jesus, God the Son, would die on the cross for sinners like you, sinners like me. And it says, in light of these things, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, and kiss the Son. Kiss the Son means give true devotion, true affection for Jesus. Not like Judas kissed Jesus. His heart wasn't in it. 
he wasn't in it at all. He was a devil from the beginning. But true homage, true bowing down, true devotion, true affection for the Lord who's demonstrated true affection for you. The only alternative to this, to this fearing the Lord and, and serving Him and rejoicing with trembling and kissing and being devoted to Him, the only alternative is to be a recipient of His anger, perishing in the way, a recipient of His wrath. You don't want any of that. You don't want to experience anything like Sodom and Gomorrah. Many people today, because of their rejection of the gospel, experience the wrath of God. It says so in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Because God has made it very clear by the creation. He's made it abundantly clear who He is. That He's God and He's created and His divine attributes, His divine nature. And we should be honoring Him and thanking Him, but when there's a refusal to do that, He gives us over to sin. He doesn't give the believer over, but He gives unbelievers. And some of you may be unbelievers. And He gives you over to your sin. Because they refuse to acknowledge the Creator. You know, if you're created, then by definition you're commanded, you're commissioned, to be in communion with God. A scientist once said, his name was George Wald, you may know this scientist, you may know his quote, he's an evolutionist, was an evolutionist, and he said, when it comes to the origin of life, we have only two possibilities as to how life arose. One is spontaneous generation arising to evolution, the other is a supernatural creative act of God. There is no third possibility. Spontaneous generation was scientifically disproved over a hundred years ago by Louis Pasteur. That leads us scientifically to only one possible conclusion, that life arose as a supernatural creative act of God. But then, George said, I will not accept that philosophically because I do not want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible. That's the attitude that these folks in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3 had. It's the attitude that many in our day have. Please let it not be the attitude that you have. Kiss this son. Rejoice with trembling. Serve this Lord with fear. Be warned. Be wise. God loves you in Jesus Christ with an everlasting love. And He deserves to rule your life, having given His own for yours. Let's love the Lord. Let's live for Him. And as this psalm concludes, let's receive the blessing of God by taking refuge in this Son named Jesus Christ. He's the King of the hill. There's no one else who can rule like Him. God bless you and keep you.